we've been talking about a lot of important things. And tonight we're going to talk about a subject that's pivotal in how we see God and how we relate to Him. I'll tell you a story that might give some examples. Uh, a salesman was talking to a young lady and it was her dress, it was her hair, it was her makeup, it was her jewelry, it was everything about her said something different, but he wasn't quite sure what it might be. And he, he talked to her for a little while and uh, she said, I don't go to church anymore. I used to, but I don't now. Although I, I do, sort of. And he was confused and uncertain about what she meant. And they kept talking a little bit more. And she said, and again, I don't go to church anymore. Although I do, sort of. And so he, he after a couple times of hearing this, he asked her directly, what, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, when I was growing up, I went to church every week. And week after week, the pastor would tell us about a God who would torment people in hell, burning fire and brimstone, tormented forever in excruciating pain. And, and she said she just got to a point where she said, enough of this. This is horrible. I don't want anything to do with this. And she said, but, but today, I'm a witch, and we'll meet together, kind of like, you know, you go to church, and, and he, she described a little bit of their service and how that all worked out. And... Uh, and he started to realize what was going on. Everything about her now made sense. How she was dressed, and what she was, um, what her hair looked like, the jewelry she was wearing, everything kind of fell in line when she said that she was a witch. Is it the case that God's people can teach something about God that can create atheists? I think if there's anything that the church has ever taught, this doctrine of eternally burning hell has created more atheists than anything else. We're going to explore the question. What is it that the Bible is talking about when it describes hell? What's the judgment on the wicked? And is God really mean? Let's, let's explore that subject a little bit. But before we go anywhere, any further, we need to remember something about God's word. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love. Now some people will hear a doctrine of eternally burning hell from their preacher or from wherever. Uh, they'll read a short passage and without context and without further study, they'll just assume what it means. And, and they'll say, well, God is love and he burns people forever, so it must be loving to burn people forever, right? But that, that's throwing reason out. And God does not encourage us to do that. He says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. He's asking us, he's inviting us to use our heads. And, and love does not torture. Well, let's explore. What does the Bible actually say is happening? We have this idea uh, about hell. But what did Jesus believe? Did Jesus believe in hell? He did. Jesus believed in hell. In Matthew 10, 28, we read that... Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus believed that hell was a, a place where people would be destroyed in bodily form. The body and the whole being is destroyed here, not some, just some spirit. And we talked about death earlier today, and we found out that, that our body is a soul. Our, our, our living being is a soul. So, the soul and the body in hell, Jesus says. So, if Jesus believes that hell is a physical place, that people will, uh, will go there and 
broadly more. When the bill of health takes place is a good question to ask. And we'll explore a little more of the details about it in a minute. So let's, we'll just kind of leave that there for a second. Because the question of when brings up all of the context around this subject. Uh, is health going on right now? Well, we found that, uh, that the wicked are not uh, going down to hell earlier today when we talked about that subject. They're not going down to hell when they die. Something is, is, is waiting. There's a, a period of waiting until some period in the future. So when is that? The, the context that we need is from Revelation chapter 20. And it's talking about the 1,000 years, or the millennium as some people talk about it. The millennium is often thought of as a time of peace and prosperity when God's people will reign with Christ. The question is, where will they reign, and what's happening to the wicked? And so we're going to explore the thousand years. Can you turn your Bibles to Revelation 20? I'll have it on the screen too, but it wouldn't hurt to have it in front of you, because we're going to come back to it a few times. And I won't always have it on the screen. Revelation chapter 20, and we're just going to read through uh, verse 1 and 3, and we're going to get pieces of 4 and 7 and 8. And you can read the whole, the whole passage, but, but I'm going to give you the six. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. Now, at either end of this thousand-year period, we have Satan being found and Satan being loosed. At the beginning he's found, at the end he's loosed. And let's read verse 3, because it explains that. It says, And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So this context, the devil is bound somewhere. Where is he bound? He's bound to earth, to this prison. I'll give you a little uh, context for that. The word, um, the, the Greek word for bottomless pit, because it says he's bound in chains in the bottomless pit, the word there is abusos. That's a, a Greek word, and I'm probably mispronouncing it. But, but that's okay. We'll just use the same pronunciation twice, and you'll see, you'll see that it, it works both places. So then, in, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that John had when he was writing the book of Revelation. Uh, this was a, I don't know, sometime many years before Christ, the, the Greeks translated uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, into the Greek language. And so that was what the apostles had access to. And we just call it the Septuagint. The Septuagint translates Genesis 1-2, and it has the same word, abusos, in the place that we read the deep. It says there in Genesis 1-2 that, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep. And, and this idea of the abyss, or abusos in Greek, um, it suggests the earth in its dark, desolate, formless, uninhabited, chaotic state. This is the, the same condition the earth was in before God created it. And here in Revelation, we find Satan bound to the desolate, uninhabited, chaotic earth. We're going to find out why the earth is that way in just a minute. But that's the context. That's where God is reading this word. The later part of Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, says, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is talking about the righteous. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
these people, they had given their lives for Christ? Are they even raised uh, from the dead in uh, the resurrection? Or, or they were uh, they were alive when Jesus came and, and they go back to heaven with Jesus. And they're living and reigning with him for a thousand years. What do you support for that? There had, if they're in heaven with Christ and they're reigning for this thousand years, a resurrection must have already taken place. Does that make sense? Is that a good conclusion to come from? Because these, these were dead people that it's talking about in Revelation 20, verse 4. And, and now they're, they're reigning with Christ. And we know that the dead don't praise God. And so therefore, they must have been awakened, like Job said that he would be at the resurrection. And so a resurrection must have taken place. So dig a little deeper in John chapter 5, and we read this. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So there's two resurrections presented in the Bible. Two resurrections. One, the resurrection of life, the resurrection of the righteous, and two, the resurrection of condemnation or judgment. So these two resurrections are the bookends of the thousand years. The first resurrection at the beginning of the thousand years, and then the righteous reign with God in heaven for a thousand years. And then the resurrection of the wicked at the end of the thousand years. The second resurrection. John 14, 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive for myself that where I am, there you may be also. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus when he, where is he going when he makes the promise? What's his plan? He's going to go back to heaven, the center of the universe, the throne of God. He's going to be with his Father. He's making mansions for us. And when he comes and raises up the dead in that first resurrection, where is he going to take the righteous that are now living after the resurrection? He's going to take them to heaven where they live and reign with God for a thousand years. Remember Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. There's a comparison here. If the righteous are saved on the boat, so to speak, they're resurrected and taken to heaven, what happens to the wicked? Uh, if you look at the story of Noah and the flood, what happens to the wicked that refuse to get on the boat in Noah's day? They die. They were drowned in the water, and they, they died. They ceased to be. If that's uh, Jesus' example of what the end will be like when he comes the second time, the righteous are taken to heaven, they are saved as though in an ark, what happens to the wicked Jesus' second coming? Revelation 6, 14 to 17 tells us in more detail. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is, as, uh, when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. We've already looked at this a little bit. Are the righteous hiding themselves? No. No, the righteous are there saying, praise God. Amen. This is, this is our God. We've waited for him and he will save us. They're excited. But it's the wicked who are fleeing into the caves and under the rocks of the mountains. And and said to the mountains and rocks, Follow us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Only if they only knew the Lamb. It's not 
full of wrath. He's full of love. But they rejected and refused and rebelled, and they only see the lies that Satan has spoken. And they see him as full of wrath. And they say, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? I'll tell you who's able to stand. Anybody who said yes to Jesus is able to stand. When Jesus comes back, many will say, We don't want to even see him. Kill me now. The glory of Jesus brightness, though, the, the amazing presence of God. The Bible says that, that uh, in Revelation 24, Exodus 34, I believe, Moses is on the mountain, and he asks to see God's glory, and God says, go into the crack of the rock, I'll put my hand over you, because if you saw me, you'd die, because no one can see the glory of God and win. And the righteous? Yes, because they're covered with the righteousness of Christ. But the wicked, when they see the glory of Jesus return, they'll be, they'll be slain by the righteousness coming upon us. So, so we know about these two groups of people. One group is the righteous. They return to, to heaven with Jesus. The other group, the wicked, they, they die at Jesus' second coming. The earth is therefore left desolate. The righteous are here. And the wicked are just, well, laying on the ground. There's uh, Jeremiah 4.23. Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. This word void is the Hebrew word bohu, which just sounds like a really fun word to say, and probably one my children would say uh, quite often every time they're sad. It's almost like boo-hoo, but it's low-hoo, all right? So there, there, there's your Hebrew lesson for the day. I'm not a Hebrew teacher. The, the university here will never hire me. I, I think that's okay. But bohu, it means emptiness. Emptiness. I looked around the earth. It was, it was without form. It was empty. And there was no light. That's what Jeremiah says. Verse 27, he looks around the earth, and there was no man, he says. No man because the Savior in heaven? And the lost were slain. In verse chapter 25, verse 33, Jeremiah says, And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. This is not a pretty picture. It's not something I would encourage you to dwell a long time on, but it's really important that we understand. We don't have a group of people hanging out after Jesus' second coming, chilling on the earth doing their thing, you know, with no apocalypse movie that has, like, the last man on earth uh, scenario is right. There is no man left on earth. The Word of God does tell us that during this thousand years, Satan will be in this abyss, this desolate, formless, uninhabited earth, bound. He can't leave. Him and his, and his, uh, his angels, the tempter, the one that, that had made his whole existence about getting men to deny God and rebel against God and barring God's creation as much as he can, he's got nothing else to do. Nothing else but to sit and think about his actions. And do you think that Satan is going to be repentant? Do you think after a thousand years he's finally going to realize how stupid he's been and how righteous God has been and loving and merciful? 
He's not going to change his mind. And, and it's very significant that God gives this opportunity. Everybody sees what Satan's doing. And by the time the end is here, everybody will have taken a side. And everybody is going to be looking to God and seeing how he relates to Satan. And God relates to Satan with such justice. Not impartiality, not, not dictatorial, autocratic, my way or the highway kind of an attitude. No, he gives Satan time. He gives everybody time to consider what's happening. And, and Satan doesn't change. That's the key. Satan doesn't change. And everybody can see God is just. And Satan is full of evil. Revelation 20, verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. They, who say, it was the righteous. The righteous that have been taken to heaven and reigned with God for a thousand years, the reigning has something to do with judgment. And Revelation 20, verse 4 says, They set up thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. To understand this judgment a little deeper, we need to go to 1 Corinthians. And please understand that you do not have the right to sit across the table from somebody else and judge them. That is not what God is saying. God is not giving us authority to judge here on earth. But he, he does say this in to Paul. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that they will be that they shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this one? Now he's he's suggesting that the church has some responsibility for making sure that that its members aren't, uh, um, aren't being rebels from God in their midst. But, but the big deal here, I think, is what Paul is saying about our future. What is this judgment? Well, it's the judgment of the wicked. God has decided the case. There's no more like opportunity for the righteous or the wicked. Uh, they've made their decision. The righteous are in heaven and will live with God forever. The wicked have made their decision to rebel against God, and that's the end. But before the, the carrying out of God's judgment on them, God gives an opportunity for all of the universe, but especially God's people, to look into those cases. What has happened that the person that I love so much isn't here in heaven? Or how could that horrible, abusive person be in heaven? Those are serious questions, and God isn't just going to Ignore those questions and say, trust me, I made a good decision. No, he doesn't want the questions in our mind at all. He wants an answer. And so he allowed us to open up those books, those books that were judged from, and he says, this is what we decided, and this is why. And so for a thousand years, we have that opportunity to explore and understand. Somebody's asked the question, is it really a thousand years? That's a long time. Maybe it's prophetic. Okay, so if it was prophetic, then when Revelation 20 talks about a thousand years, it's really talking about 3.6 million years. That's a longer time. Let's, let's dial that back a little bit and say, no, it wasn't prophetic. What if it's figurative, right? A thousand years is as a day to the Lord, as the Bible says, and a day is as a thousand years. So if it's not 3.6 million or 100 million, if it's a day is a thousand years, then um, would it be one day we go to heaven and one day later uh, the, the wicked are no, there's not enough time to explore those pieces and to answer those questions. So it seems like the only alternative <coughs> we're left with is that it's a literal thousand years. 
Does that make sense? Is that, is that fair? I, I'm not a uh, theologian that could explore all of the nuances of that, but I think that covers the basics. And we can say it's a literal thousand years. So during this thousand years, we have the saints in heaven, and we have the earth desolate, no one living, Satan in chains, bound there, without the ability to tempt or, or uh, cheat or lie or deceive or anything else that he does. And then in verse 7, Revelation 20 brings out the end. What's happening at the end of this thousand years? Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. What does that mean, released? Does that mean he gets to go off the earth? No. Remember, the prison isn't so much that he's literally bound in chains. It's that he has the ability to do what he's, his sole purpose in life has been for the last many thousand years. He cannot tempt to deceive. So what happens that he is released? Verse 5 tells us, go back a couple of verses. The rest of the dead. Who's the rest of the dead? If the righteous are in heaven living, who's the rest of the dead that weren't raised in the first resurrection? It's the wicked. The wicked who are waiting until the second resurrection. And it says the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. So the first resurrection took place when Christ returns. The second resurrection, the resurrection of condemnation, is at the end of the thousand years. And now Satan's back in business. He can trick and deceive and do all of the terrible things that he wants to do. And if, if you go into the grave as a Christian and you're raised after the re or during the resurrection, the first resurrection, how do you come out? Do you come out imperfect and all, all that we are today? You change. No, you come out changed. God gives you perfect bodies and He takes you to heaven. What about the wicked? They go in and, and they're, they're rebellious against God. Do they come out changed with glorious bodies, planning for eternity? No, they come out with the same imperfect bodies that they can get into the grave. Now, if, if they are now raised from the dead, I, I have to admit that this thought is a little disturbing because I'm from a generation, uh, basically since a little before I was born, where zombie movies have been a big, big deal. And uh, probably, well definitely, unfortunately, I've been exposed to one or two. And, uh, and, and this idea sounds a lot like a terrible zombie apocalypse to me. But basically you've got a bunch of wicked people that rise, imperfect and broken bodies or whatever, and Satan is now able to tempt them. And the Bible says that he goes throughout, uh, the, uh, throughout the world tempting and gathering them together. Because there's something, there, there's a goal that he has. Something is happening in the same context as this thousand years ending and the dead, wicked dead being raised. Something amazing and beautiful and marvelous is happening. And Satan wants to take advantage. What happens? Well, Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, tells us the story. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sin. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Is this the Jerusalem that we know today in Palestine? No. No, no. This is a new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. If there's any question about where this new Jerusalem is from, 
this should answer us without a shadow of a doubt. This is God's holy city, where God's throne is in heaven somewhere. And, and you think about it, you realize this is saying something amazing about God. This place is the only place in all of the universe that is heaven. We have rebelled against God. It is the worst tragedy in all of history, in all of the universe, in all time. And yet, it's also the greatest victory. Because Jesus has won the victory, and, and the wicked who have accepted Christ and said, I'd like to be with Jesus for all eternity, they're now righteous, and God has changed their hearts. And, and now he takes the capital of the universe and moves it down to heaven to live with us forever. In fact, the original temple, the original sanctuary, it was the reason that it was built, God says, is so that I might dwell among them. And that's his plan for all eternity to live with us. Intimate, loving relationship, leading together often. He wants to live with us for all eternity. I think that's an amazing thing about God. So uh, the first part of this story is the beginning of a thousand years. There's the first resurrection, the second coming, that the dead are laid, I mean the wicked are laid to rest. Satan spends a thousand years in, well, in chains, so to speak. Nothing to do, bored out of his mind. Uh, and then there's the resurrection, the second resurrection of the wicked. And the holy city descends from God out of heaven and makes its home here on earth. And all the wicked are led by Satan to surround the city. Let's read about it. Revelation 29 says, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Surrounded by the wicked. What's the plan? When you surround a city, and, and the, the words that it's using is, is as though all the generals, of, great generals of, of history, uh, maybe we have Stalin and Hitler, and maybe there's uh, Alexander the Great, and I don't know, think of all the ones that you can imagine. And, and Satan has deceived them and led them um, in, in their military order up to the city. What's their plan? What's their goal? Their plan is to take the city. This is a, a military offensive. They're gonna they're gonna take what's theirs. Probably Satan has convinced them that, that this holy city is rightfully theirs, and God has no reason to keep them out of it. And then fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This is Revelation's like fire. This is the hell fire and brimstone that you hear about. And it happens after this thousand years of investigation and assuring that God is just. And it happens after they've demonstrated again and again and again that their only goal is to destroy God and take over um, whatever is his by force. Remember the woman that I told you about at the beginning? She was told that God was roasting and roasting people for all eternity. Can you imagine that? You're, you're in the time after all of sin is done, um, and you're traveling from one place in the universe to another, because I'm sure that's because that would be cool and I'd love to, and it seems like that's possible in, in the stories the Bible tells, but you're traveling from one part of the universe to another part of the universe, and, and as you're traveling, 
it's perfect, it's wonderful, it's, it's everything that you could ever imagine, and way beyond, except there's that little spot over there where people that you know are burning in torments forever. Does, does that make sense? No. No, no, this is not God's plan. Matthew 13, 39 uh, tells us uh, a, a, another piece of this story, and it's uh, Jesus, he had... Uh, he told this parable about the wheat and the tares, wheat and the weeds. The tares look a lot like the wheat, but they're clearly not wheat. And uh, so the, there's a field, there's some workers, the workers come, and it says that uh, the evil one had sown the tares in the field during the night. And when the workers find out that the tares are there, they come to the, the master of the farm, and they say, what should we do? Should we take out the tares? And the master says, no, leave them until when? Leave them until the harvest. And, and then they'll be picked up and put in a pile and lit on fire, burned, done. And then Jesus goes on in Matthew 13, 39 to say that the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers of the angels. So when are the wicked, the tares, burned up? Is it right now? It's at the end of the age. In John 5, 28 and 29, he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Honestly, while hell is a terrible, terrible idea, it's also relieving to know what the Bible actually says about God's judgment. Hell does exist, but it's not existing today. It's not burning your loved ones who didn't trust Jesus today. There will be a time when sin is eradicated by the fire coming from God, but that's the time after uh, the thousand years is finished. Do you think God uh, loves the idea of hell? No. Well, the Bible says that he does not desire that anybody should but that all should come to repentance, to everlasting life. Did Jesus come to die for just you and me? No. The Bible says in John 3, 16 that Jesus, that God so loved the world, the entire world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's plan is for everlasting life. He makes every provision for everyone to have an opportunity. And, and he He's not exclusive. He, it's not like only those people that are, are pretty nice can be saved. Or only those people that are mostly nice can be saved. Or only those people that are somewhat nice can be saved. But not those really terrible people. No, you can be saved too. However bad your life has ever been, God simply says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Amen. Amen. And the, the result of sin, the, the second death, as the Bible talks about it, it doesn't need to be yours. 2 Peter 3 7 says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Peter talks about the heavens, that's the air that we breathe and the sky that we see, and the earth, that's what we walk on, that's where we live. He's talking about the elements of our environment. And he, he says that those elements, 
those are going to burn. So where is hell is the question that, that this answers. Is hell uh, someplace in the in, in the cosmos way out there that God sends the wicked souls? Yeah. No. Hell is the, the lake of fire is the earth burning up. Revelation 20 verse 9 says they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints that belonged to the entire kingdom from God out of heaven and devoured them on the earth. Right here. Why, why is it that hell is on earth? You've heard that saying. That would be like hell on earth. Well, that's literally what it's going to be. Hell on earth. See, God is going to purify the world. There's going to be no more nuclear waste. There's going to be no more terrible, awful viruses. There's going to be uh, no more sin, no more junk cluttered up, no more piles of toxic waste because we dumped our stuff and built cities on top of it. Nothing, nothing, nothing like that. Because it's all in the earth. But that sounds kind of, kind of harsh. It's all going to burn. But, but uh, it's actually a good thing. Because when you burn something up, it cleanses. What's the best way to uh, clean a needle if you want to take something uh, something sticking in your flesh out? What are those called? A splinter. Thank you. If you want to take a splinter out, how do you clean that needle? Put it over fire. It's one of the best things to clean things off. And that's what God is planning on doing. No more dark, dirty back alleys. The Lord is going to clean it all up. It's going to be beautiful. So how long? If we, if we know when it's going to be, context of this thousand years, and we know where it's going to be for earth itself, and how long is it going to last? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say how long the fire is going to burn. But I do know that it's going to be a finite period of time. And I know that because the Bible promises in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Old had passed away. Everything was new. How did it become new? God recreates it. Not in some other place. He recreates this place. How did he do it? Well, the fire has to go out from it. So how long did it last? Um, I, I was going to mention, I, I put this slide in here. If God were the kind of God that burned people forever and ever and ever, and that fire lasted forever, then he would be more tyrant than Stalin or Hitler ever were. Stalin and Hitler were terrible people that tortured and, and maimed and destroyed people's lives. But at least they had the decency to end their lives. A God who would constantly recreate burning flesh so that people could continually experience pain is not a nice God. That is a terrible, sadistic tyrant. I just want to say that because it's it's something we don't want to recognize. But the first verse we started with is God is love. It doesn't say God is a tyrant. It says God is love. So let's just put that out of our minds and recognize there's a finite period of time for this um, this burning hell. John, 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. The, those who reject Jesus will not live in hell forever. God's not going to give them immortality as a gift for, for punishment. Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul who sins shall die. Just to make sure that you understand this, Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. 
and Revelation 20:14 describes this experience of hell as the second death. Not the second burning, but the second death. The result is death. The wicked in Psalm 37, the wicked will not be, they will be consumed away into smoke. Revelation, uh, sorry, Psalm 68, 2, the wicked will perish. And that's, that's the idea. Done, gone, over. Ezekiel 28, 18 says about Satan, I brought fire out of your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Ashes. That's the end result of fire. It's not continual burning, but the end result of fire. In Malachi 4, 1 and 3, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. All the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. That's the same idea as ash. And the day will come, the day which is coming shall burn them up. I have a fire pit in the backyard, and uh, whenever I put wood in the fire, in the fire pit, I light it on fire, and the flames go. Um, after a couple hours, they are burned up. What does that mean when I say they're burned up? They're gone. There's no more wood to burn. My fire has died out, and unfortunately, it's cold and uh, and, and it's not brilliantly bright and wonderful to sit around anymore. I go in and, uh, and I and I take and I go to bed. Fire's gone. It's done. That's what it's saying here. The wicked will be burned up in that it will be gone. It will leave them neither root nor branch. The root will be Satan. The root of all wickedness, and the branch will be all those who follow him. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. And uh, Revelation 21 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow, for there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I think John knew all about this idea of the final second death, because if he didn't know, then he was either very ill-informed or a liar when he said there would be no more pain. John knows that there is going to be a time after the thousand years are done, after wickedness is wiped out, that there will be no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more sickness. And I just, I just have to say that is one of the most exciting things. It's not going to be at Jesus' second coming. I, I, want, I want to recognize that. There will be joy. But when I get to heaven, I see it in the books. Um, the wickedness and the justice, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. I'm sure there will be lots of tears in heaven. Maybe that sounds incredible. But knowing the work that, that will have to be done during that thousand years, I recognize the possibility of suffering. But when the wicked are completely um, gone and the earth is recreated, um, the sorrow that we once have will give way to peace in God's justice. And, and though there was sadness, there will now be joy. Like the psalm says, our mourning will be turned to laughter. Amen. 1-9 makes this promise. And I think we can apply it to this time of the end. It says, that affliction, or wickedness, or sin, we could add in there, shall not rise up a second time. It will be done. There will never, ever, in all of the eternity in the future, will be, there will never be sin. No one will ever rebel again. 
And if you think that the righteous who look at the cases of the wicked and experience salvation themselves, do you think they might have something to do with that? I think, I think that maybe those who live with God and, and have been resurrected from the dead or who have been raised as uh, living when Jesus comes, they'll know Jesus' salvation so dearly and love him so much. But when somebody starts to question and doubt like Lucifer did way back in the beginning, they're going to say, let me, let me tell you a few stories. Let me tell you what God really is. You can trust him. Affliction shall not rise up a second time. Now, last thing that we need to talk about is this idea forever and ever. Because it is in the Bible. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who deceives them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. In the Bible, there's a lot of places that forever and ever is mentioned. And rarely does it have to do with eternity. Usually, it has to do with a specific period of time. For example, in 1 Samuel 1, 22, the Samuel's mother brings Samuel to the temple, and she says that she's going to leave him there forever. Is Samuel still in the temple today? No. He, he died. Uh, he's no longer in the temple. In, in fact, just a few verses later, it says that he was there for as long as he lived. So forever for this eon of time was a period of time. Not a specific one year or five years, but an indefinite period of time until that time ended. And that's the idea of forever. Jonah said that he was in the belly of the whale. How many days and how many nights? Oh no, he said forever. <laughs> and I bet it felt like forever to him, but we know because the narrator of the book tells us that it was three days and three nights that he was in the belly of the whale. Oh my goodness, how terrible the that would have been. Well, he, he, he got out, thankfully, um, in an unconventional way. Is, is uh, hell forever? Yes, it is. It's forever. The Bible says it is. Uh, in the sense that it does its work, it completes it. It lasts until it is done. What is the work of, of hell, the fire that comes down from God? It's to cleanse the world of all sin and evil. And anybody who's rebelling against God and clings to Satan and sin will be destroyed with all of the other works of sin. That's the, that's the purpose. And so once that destruction has happened, will it have a need to continue on? No, it will be, it will be finished. Will the work be forever? Yes. The, 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 there will be no resurrection from the second death. There's the completeness and finality in this, in this judgment. And so in that case, the work of hell has lasted forever. But the working of hell, it only lasts until it's completed. Uh, there is a place in Mark 9, 43. Jesus says, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off figuratively. Please don't do this in, in actuality. Figuratively, it's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. So first, for as long as it's needed to get rid of sin. Or here's Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Jude, verse 7, says, Sodom and Gomorrah are examples of eternal fire. And then in 2 Peter, uh, which borrows a lot of, of ideas from the Jews, 2 Peter 2 6 says, Sodom and Gomorrah were turned into ashes. That's the example of eternal fire that the Bible gives us. Okay, so what about the rich men and Lazarus? Just really briefly. 
A uh, rich man Lazarus has a story that Jesus told. He says that uh, there was a rich man, and Lazarus was a poor man who was at his gates begging for bread. They both ended up dying. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, and, and the rich man dies and goes to Hades. Or, and and in, uh, this is Luke 16, if you want to look it up. And uh, when you look at this story, you have to understand that Jesus was, he was dealing in the common folklore. Have you heard of Hans Christian Anderson? If I were to tell you uh, just, just a phrase, Mother Goose, do you understand all the stories that come along with that? Uh, or what about the, uh, the golden, the, the, what, the goose that lays the golden egg, is that what it was? Um, you, you start to get the idea of what the story is. Or what about Jack and the Beanstalk? You see that we have common folklore, things that we know and we reference. Well, Jesus was referencing something that was common enough, an idea of reading it, that was common enough that as he started talking about it, they would understand what was going on. And he's using this to illustrate a spiritual truth that has nothing to do with the afterlife. You see that if you look at the story, these are, are wealthy people. He's talking to the Pharisees, spiritually wealthy. And they think that Abraham is, you know, their, their lineage, because Abraham is their father, is good enough for them to get into the kingdom. And God says, no, this guy is Abraham's child, and he goes to Hades. And so it's not your lineage that gets you anywhere. And then you, you get the picture of this guy, he's, he's looking over into paradise, where Lazarus is, somewhere in Abraham's bosom. And he says, could you give me, send, send Lazarus to quench my thirst and give me a drop of water from his finger. If this was literal, wouldn't he be asking for like Niagara Falls? Please put out the fire. Yes. Yeah, no, no. There's nothing about a wet finger that would help if you're burning in hell. This isn't literal. Also, can you talk from hell to heaven? Can you talk and communicate and interact? No, no. There's no idea of this in the Bible. So this is figurative. And what is Jesus trying to communicate? Well, it says in verse 24, I'm uh, sorry, not verse 24, a little bit farther. Um, he asks, he says, I have five brothers. Could you send Lazarus back from the dead? And then tell my brothers about this place so that they won't come here. And the, the uh, story, the narrator said, no. If they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't listen if somebody came back from the dead. Jesus, he performed a miracle. Remember when he raised a guy from the dead? What was that guy's name? Lazarus. Lazarus. And you know what happened when he raised Lazarus from the dead? The Pharisees started plotting Jesus' death and Lazarus' death. They didn't believe the prophets before Lazarus was raised. They certainly didn't believe after. Jesus was talking about their spiritual condition. Yes, he wasn't telling us what happens in the afterlife. Uh, so let's take Lazarus, the story of the rich man of Lazarus and say this is a good parable that helps us understand spiritual truth. It is not God. I mentioned this verse before. He who has the Son has life, and he who has not the Son has not life. Jesus is standing at the door. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. He's knocking at your heart's door. And we've talked about the Bible and our need for having the Bible as our foundation for truth, and not some guy's interpretation 
Uh, not some experience with some supernatural being, but the Bible and, and God's truth as a foundation for our lives and our belief. And the, the foundation that's most important is Jesus Christ. Paul calls him the chief cornerstone of our faith. And he's not here. He's saying, I'd like to be in your life. Would you just let me in? I'd like to save you from all of that wickedness, and I'd like to save you from all of the destruction that's going to happen. Would you please let me in? I don't know what your process has been up till now. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years, and Jesus is just your best friend. I'm really glad. That is a wonderful thing. Maybe you've been on the fringes, and while you've been participating in church, your heart hasn't been fully surrendered. Friends, this is the time. I don't know when Jesus is going to come. It might be tomorrow, it might be in, in, in 20 years, I don't know. But tonight is the opportunity that God has given us. Don't harden your heart. Say yes to Jesus tonight. And maybe you, you're just exploring this Christianity thing and trying to figure it out. That's fine. Jesus is knocking at your door and he's saying, Won't you love me? 